Okay, hello. All right, if you have a Bible with you, uh, while the buckets are still going around, you might want to uh, be finding Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the word should appear on the screen and you'll be able to follow there if you want to. Uh, we're going to read uh, the, from verse 18 in Hebrews chapter 13. through to the end. Okay, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 18. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honourably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now, may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good thing for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Okay. We come to the end of Hebrews chapter 13. The end of the letter to the Hebrews. Which, if you've been with us represents for us the conclusion of a four-year journey. A four-year journey on the 14th of December 2014. I got up here. I don't know if we were upstairs or we were downstairs. We'd probably have been... I can't remember. Um, time flies. Um, I got up and asked you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. So, I'm going to do the same bad joke I did at 9.30. This is the, this is the difficulty of of preaching to three congregations. You do a joke at 9.30 and it's awful. Well, do I take it out? <laughs> Shall I take it out? We can just move on. No. I'm going to join with the writer after my 40 messages on Hebrews and ask you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have spoken to you quite briefly. There you go. Shall I take it out for 3.30? Or, or shall I build it up even more? And anyway, we've had, if you've been here, it's been a while going through this letter, but in all seriousness, I will say, in one sense, maybe you wouldn't agree, I think we have gone through this quite briefly in some ways. There's so much we could tuck into and open up even more, which is probably partly what the writer is also making a point of as well. But through 40 messages since the 14th of December, we've looked at this letter and we come to this ending where he concludes. How does he end his letter? How does he conclude? Well, he concludes with some brief greetings. Greetings to all your, le greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. He asks them to greet all the leaders, all the people. But as at the beginning... Maybe not quite as briefly as at the beginning, because he brings no greetings at the beginning. 
But at the end, he's, he's not giving a lot of time to anything other than his message. I want to get into this. I want to tell you, this is what is true. At the beginning of the letter, how does he start? Not, I, so-and-so, we don't know what his name is. But straight in. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's straight in. And at the end, yes, there are some greetings in a very short block right there. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. And then we probably get most of what we know about the author from here, other than what we gather from the way he's saying things and what he's saying and who, who he seems to be speaking to. And that's not particularly clear. First, we know that Timothy is a mutual friend. The author and those who's writing to know Timothy. Somehow, some way, because he encourages them. He brings them good news. Timothy has been released. Our brother, Timothy, has been released. Perhaps Timothy had been in prison. We don't know that bit. But he, they long to come to see them. There's, a, there's this mutual sense of, we want to be with you. We want to be with you. There, there's relationship here. Timothy, the author, and the people he's writing to. So we know that. And then a slightly ambiguous statement which could give us some information, but we're not sure. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Which at first reading we could go, oh great, at least we know the author's writing from Italy. Apart from, it could be that, those with me here in Italy send their greetings. Or, those who have come to visit me from Italy send you their greetings. Or even, those who've come from you in Italy, who are now with me, send back their greetings. So that doesn't really make anything much clearer, but they have some friends from Italy, so that's good. <laughs> it's always the ones that you just sneak in there. Deliberately, of course, deliberately. <laughs> but beyond these brief greetings, thank you, Liam. How does he conclude? What's his focus as he brings the letter to an end? Yes, greet one another. Yes, these friends send greetings. Yes, bear with me. What is his focus? Well, he has these two requests. He urges firstly in verse 18 and 19, pray for me or pray for us. Pray for us. We're sure we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. And I particularly urge you, pray for me. Pray so that I may be restored to you soon. He asks for their prayers. His particular desire is to be with them. He wants to come and see them. So pray, pray. Lift me up in prayer that we may be I may be restored to you. We may be together. That's his desire. And then secondly, he brings this request that I've already badly joked about, bear with me. It's urging, bear with me. Bear with my word of exhortation, which we can joke about and think, well, there's 13 chapters of this. It doesn't seem that brief. But he's making the point. There's a, it sounds funny, but there is an important point. Bear with my word of instruction, exhortation, for in fact, I've written to you quite briefly. This letter, so full of truth, so densely packed, so valuable. 
What's his urging? Take it on board. Bear with me. Receive it. Receive what I'm saying to you. Take it in. I know there's a lot in here, perhaps is in his mind. I know there's a lot of truth. There's a lot to get your head round. But take it on board. Because in reality, I could have unpacked it even more. I could have gone into even more detail in different places. He's recognizing both that this is full of wonderful truth and that there's stuff that's had to go unsaid and there's even more that he could have said. But take it on board. Get hold of it. It, He's commending what he said to them. Bear with me because this is so valuable. Get hold of this truth because it is wonderful. So valuable. And perhaps the the request for us in that sense could be, let's keep coming back. Let's keep reading this. Let's keep coming back to the rich truth that's in this letter that can be quite hard to grapple with and can be quite hard to get hold of, but it is so good. It's so wonderful. So he makes these two requests, pray for me and bear with me. But in between, he prays for them. And this is what is central to his conclusion. This is his focus. As he concludes in total grace be with you all, his heart is to pray for them. His heart is to to come to this point and to pray. It's so key. I want to pray for you. He's asked them, pray for me, but I also want to pray for you. It's so key. Pray for one another. Pray for each other. Keep lifting one another up to God in prayer. Keep coming back to God in prayer. But so, as it is so key to his conclusion, as it is his focus here, we're going to have a look at what he prays. Firstly, who does he ask? See, his prayer is two verses in our in, our, in, in the way it's set out in, in, in our Bibles. The, first, the whole of the first verse, definitely, is basically directing them to who he is asking, to who he is praying to. This is his focus here. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep... He hasn't gone on to ask what he's going to ask yet. But he's drawing their focus back again. Who am I going to ask about you? Who am I going to ask to to do something for you? Who am I going to ask about about what I want to see happen with you? And he comes and brings his focus here to the God of peace. To the God of peace. But he goes on. The God of peace and as we will see, the God of power. The God of peace, who, through the blood of of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. This is the power of God. The God of peace, but he's the God of power. The God who, as Stephen talked about the same thing he declared in Acts chapter 2 about Jesus being raised from the dead. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, what did he say? But God raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is the power of God. 
This is the power of God. And he's drawing their attention back again. I want to pray for you, but this is who I'm going to pray to. This is who I'm going to ask. The God of peace. God, who by his power raised Jesus from the dead. Not just the God of peace and the God of power, but a God who is faithful. What does he slip in there? The God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant. The God who's made an eternal covenant with his people. The God who is faithful. The God who always listens. The God who is always there. The God who is always in control. This is who I will ask. Who brought Jesus back from, brought back our, from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. That great shepherd of the sheep. He throws that in there as well. Jesus, the one who is the shepherd of the sheep, the one who cares for you, the one who is always caring, the one who is always looking after you, the one who is always there. And those wonderful words in John chapter 10 that Jesus says, in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. What does the shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. This is who he's praying to. The God of peace and of power and of faithfulness who raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus who is the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who knows the sheep and the sheep know him. He's reminding them in one short verse of just so much wonderful truth. This is who I can ask. This is who you can ask. This is who you can come to. God, the God of peace and power and faithfulness, the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who knows you. You see, he's, his focus here is reminding us of all that he's already said in one way. He's telling us, look, it's all through the work of God through Jesus. He's been reminding us in all the chapters preceding, this is what's happened. God sent his son. Jesus has come. The something far better that has come is Jesus Christ. God, throughout all the Old Testament, was with his people. He was doing amazing things, but it came to this at just the right time. God sent Jesus, and he's the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the one who has laid down his life for the sheep and now has been raised to life again. He's the one who's always caring, who's always there, who's always seated on the throne, the one who's always faithful. So this is who I ask, the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. In short, the God who is able to act and who has shown himself so graciously willing to act. This is who he asks. But what does he ask? He goes on. 
God who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is his prayer. To the God of peace, to the God of power and of faithfulness, the one who knows them. May he equip you. May he equip you. At the end of everything he has said, his prayer is this. May God equip you. May God work in you. May he who raised Jesus from the dead, he who is eternally faithful, he who is powerful, may he work in you. May he equip you to do his will and work what is pleasing to him. He draws them back to this truth. It's God's work. It's God who is at work. It's God who you need. You need him. You see, he's exhorted the people many times. He's encouraged them and challenged them. Keep going. Keep pressing on. Run the race. We see throughout chapter 13 these exhortations to to love one another and all sorts of other things. But all through the letter, brothers, we must pay more careful attention to what we've heard. Make every effort to enter his rest. Do not give up meeting together. Keep persevering. All sorts of exhortations, challenge, keep going, guys, keep going for it. But ultimately, his prayer comes back to the heart of what he's saying. Not at the end of all that, I pray that you keep running the race by your best efforts. By, the, by your strength, you need to keep going. I pray that you do. But no, his prayer comes back to the heart of all he believes, the heart of what our lives are in God and in Christ. May God equip you. May he work in you everything that, uh, what is pleasing to him through Jesus. You see, as Paul exhorts similarly in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, His exhortation to them is this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But what does he go on? For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul's encouragement, the writer to the Hebrews' encouragement is keep going, run after him, but remember, it's him who's at work in you. It is him who has saved you. It is him who is transforming you. It is him who is doing it. So therefore my prayer is may God equip you and may he work in you so that we will see you running the race. We'll see you going after him. We'll see you abounding in good works. We'll see you doing everything that is good and pleasing to him will be worked out in you. What God is doing in you. You see, his... His focus here is to encourage us to come back to the fact this is impossible on our own. You see, look even at what he's just exhorted the people to do in chapter 13. So many exhortations, so many challenges. Keep on loving one another. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. 
Remember those in prison and those who are ill-treated. He's encouraging them to care for the mistreated, the marginalised, those whose society would reject. He exhorts them to honour marriage and to sexual purity. He exhorts them to keep yourself free from the love of money and exhorts them in relating well to their leaders and he goes on and on and on. Some of it doesn't even seem to make sense without God's. But ultimately... It's impossible without him. In him, this is our desire. But as we spoke last time, it's not a list of rules. We'll tick these off. These are the, these are the things to do. But hallmarks of life in Christ by his spirit. You see, he's pointing this out as he prays. May God equip you. May he be at work in us. You can't do this on your own. We can't do this in our own strength. It has to be by his power. It has to be by his work in us. It's by his power and by his spirit that we live for him. As he's reminded them, God, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, it's God's power. That's God's power. What does Paul say when he talks about that in Romans chapter 8? He talks about the Spirit of God that is in us. And in Romans chapter 8, starting from verse 9, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This wonderful truth that the spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us. If we're in Christ, that's the truth. He comes and fills us. He comes and fills us so that therefore it's his work transforming us moving us on, enabling us to run after him, to persevere, to be able to to have the desire in our heart. Yeah, it's my desire to love my brothers and sisters. It's my desire to show compassion to strangers and to those in prison and all these different things. Not because I've got a list of rules that I somehow have to tick off, but because he's at work. He's doing what the writer to the Hebrews prays. He's equipping us with every good, everything good for doing his will and working in us what is pleasing to him. But it's only by his power. You see, how do we live for him? How do we run with perseverance? How do we live for God in the workplace when no one else is following him? When everyone else is running in the opposite direction? How do you live for God at school or at nursery when all your friends don't even know about Jesus. Perhaps there are some who you can talk to. Perhaps there's some who also know him, but others who just don't even know. How do we honour marriage when the generation around us is crying out 
the need for the next relationship or the next this or the that or this is our identity. This is what it means to be human is to be in these different relationships. How do we stand firm in a culture that for all intents and purposes worships money and the pursuit of more? Whether a particular person at that time has much or has little, that's where our society is at. And how do we relate well with leadership when our culture treats us, and treats us to be wary or suspicious or even cynical of anyone in authority? Whether that's the government, the police, our bosses. And flipping it around, how do we in any position of leadership model something that's so drastically different to what we see around us? There is only one answer. It's by his power, his spirit at work in us. So how does he equip us? That's what the writer asks. How does he equip us? Well, by one thing, by his word. By his words, he equips us. As he's already said in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's a powerful thing. The word of God is powerful and it transforms us. As we get hold of it, as we read it, as we hear it, as we get into his words, we are transformed. 2 Timothy and verse, uh, chapter 3 uh, tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. That all scripture uh, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is powerful. The word of God is so powerful and by it, God works in us. But also through the church, through the body of Christ, he works and encourages and equips us by those around us. Paul talks about this in a particular way in Ephesians chapter 4. And he talks about particular gifts that have been given to the church. And he talks about uh, apostles and prophets and so on. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He's built us together. And yes, he's given particular gifts to the church. He's given all sorts of things to us, but through the body of Christ, he equips us. He equips us to live for him. So through the word, through the church, but by being filled with his spirit. This is where we're going to land in a minute. By being filled with his spirit, the New Testament talks, Jesus talks about, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about going on being filled with the spirit. We need him at work in our lives. This is the spirit of God at work in us. We need him in order that we may live for him, in order that we may be his witnesses, as Jesus said, in order that God would work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, we need his Holy Spirit. We need to go on being filled day by day that our lives would be about following him, living for him as he works in us. This is what he prays. May God equip you 
with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. To what end? That's who he's prayed to, that's what he's prayed for, but to what end? What is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. It's all for his glory. All for the glory of God. In Christ, that all the glory may go to him. See, the writer, having written all his preceding 13 and nearly 13 chapters, knowing their situation, knowing what they were going through, knowing what was going on around them, this is what he prays. Not primarily for their happiness, not primarily for their comfort, or even not primarily for their protection in the tough times of persecution, but that God would be at work in them, giving them everything they need to bring about what is pleasing to him, enabling them to live for him, that God may be glorified, that God may get all the glory. You see, his chief concern is for their holiness rather than their happiness for their Christ-likeness rather than their comfort. And ultimately, that God may get all the glory. That's what he prays. He doesn't, he doesn't pray, A, may you be strong in yourself, or may all the troubles that you're facing be stripped away. What he goes to first is this, may God equip you that you may live for him. May he work in you everything that is pleasing to him that God may be glorified. Yes, of course, there is a place to pray for circumstances to change. There is a place to pray that God would come and break in. We see that throughout Scripture too. But his primary, primary concern at the end of his letter is this. May God equip you that he may get the glory. May God equip you that you may run for him, that he may get the glory. His focus is to draw us back to our need of God, our need of him, in all that he said, all that he's encouraged them, all that he's exhorted them. What do we need? We need him by the power of his spirit. We can do nothing without him. But let us run. Let us ask him. Equip us, God that we may run for you, that you may get all the glory. May that be our chief aim. As we come to the end of this letter, may that be what we take away. Jesus has come. He is so much greater. He is the answer. He is the saviour. We want our lives to be those that run after him. And therefore, God, we need you. We need you by the power of your spirit to come and work in us.